Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I am your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 37 with my friend, Lindsay. Uh, what a great interview. I had such a good time catching up with her. This is like half of our conversation. We talked for like two and a half hours. Um, so this is not two and a half hours long, uh, but I was so good catching up with her. You know, there's a lot of people in your past that um, you... When you see him again or talk to him again, especially after, you know, like 20 years almost, um, it can be like a little awkward and, you know, are you guys the same person? Do you have the same inside jokes? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's never that way with Lindsay and I love, I love, uh, anytime I get to chat with her. So this was no, uh, exception to that rule. And, uh, we talk about all sorts of stuff. Um, she's from England originally and immigrated to the U S when she was, I think 16, 17, and uh, so we talk about the entire immigration process for a teenager at that time. She's now an American citizen, got her citizenship um, like five years ago, I think. And, uh, and then she also talks in detail about endometriosis and her struggle with that throughout um, her life. So really, really interesting topics and uh, first person take on both uh, amongst other things that we talk about. So hope you guys enjoy it. This is episode 37 with my friend, Lindsay. We can still do that. That's the funny thing about this. It's like, we can do that when it's not recording. <laughs> I know. Especially now. Um, but look, it is, we're starting on time. That's why we started early. Perfect. See, uh, I like where your head's at. So I would start out with how I know people. I met you in high school. You just moved here from jolly old England. That's the only one I'll get in. I promise. I'm sorry. <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> and, uh, and then we were in the same group of friends and started hanging out. And there was that tight knit group of friends who I've interviewed a couple of them on here. Um, and then, you know, our paths separated <laughs> around <laughs> 20, 21 and, uh, and yeah, and then I bump into you here and there, but no negative stuff, which is nice because I think there's still some negative shit between some people in that group. But um, yes, there's a couple of people that. Uh, but nothing between us, so that's good. <laughs> no, we never had a. I got we to see. A, you, I think uh, we never got. We never got incredibly close. Yeah. Like we were always like solidly around when everyone else was. Were around, we Chandler and, and Phoebe? Then, <laughs> yeah, like and then we. But it kind of was good because it meant we never got into any of the mad stuff where we ever had any Yeah, nothing issues. nothing too dramatic. Um, no. And then I got to see you. Oh, God, it's a, it's been over a year since I was there. But, yeah, I was there in the Bay Area it, in 20, definitely. It had 2018, to be, November 2018. Yeah. Um, which is fun. I didn't know when I would see you but I sporadically took a trip to get my Delta status. Um, <laughs> but uh, let's go back in time as we do. Uh, you, I know some things about you, obviously. Uh, you have no siblings, right? I'm not off. Am no, I wrong? I do have a sibling. See, I knew it. I even was like, Justin, does she? And I looked <laughs> in the most convenient spot. I looked on Facebook. I was like, look under family. And I was like, no, you have a brother. No. I have a brother who's still older. in England. Older brother? Older brother in England. How married much older? Children. Three years and three days. Three days? Wait, yep. no. 
Oh, three years. Three, and three years days. and three days. I thought you said three, as in three days. I was like, how is that fucking possible? <laughs> Your poor mother. <laughs> that would be. An interesting twin situation. Oh my god! Three years and three days. Okay. He uh, he stayed. Well, so you're born in Norwich. I was born in the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital. Yep. (laughs) That's exciting. Um, In uh, in Norwich. Yep. In uh, 1982. So what was your? It's so weird. This because I I feel like I you didn't talk a lot about your brother when I knew you. It, who knows? It was dramatic teenage time. <laughs> it was a dramatic teenage time, and I wasn't particularly close to my brother when we were close growing up, and he had already left for university, and we moved, and he was in his first year of university, so he'd moved out of the house, and I was in junior year of high school, and what would be junior year in high school in America. Yeah. And so my parents determined that they would take me and leave him to finish university. And I guess their plan was that when he finished university, he would move to the States. And that never happened. (laughs) He was like, F that. And it has become kind of a strange... I had quite... There's only four of us. My parents are still together. And it's become kind of an issue in my family because he survived on his own, got married and had kids. And he kind of has his own life and in some ways doesn't really involve my family and my parents in that. I mean, I can um, kind of understand um, that. And I think, yeah. And I think that, you know, I was very upset and resentful and upset that I was moved. And he, I think, felt abandoned that he was there. And in hindsight, when you're 19, if your entire family moves across an ocean, that's really young now. Like back then it was like, whatever. Yeah. Now I'm like, <clears throat> To not, and we'd fly him over for all the holidays and everything, but it's not the same. Like you can't go home, and I think he yeah. became very attached to parents' fam- um, friends' parents and stuff rather than my parents. And yeah, I, I mean, I can't imagine home. that. My uh, my mom sold our house, like my childhood house, when I was eighteen, and just not having that physical home was really weird. But not having like that home in like people being in another country, I can't even imagine. Um, yeah. But you said you guys were close so, growing up? Yeah, we got along growing up. I mean, he was three years older and he was a boy. So we didn't really compete about stuff. Yeah. I feel like we had um, kind of our own lanes so that we didn't need to. And then we got along well enough and had sort of a respect factor enough. I mean, we'd fight a little bit, but um, we enjoyed each other's company enough that we'd play from when we were children right up until when he moved out um what did you got along so what did your mom and dad do when you were born so my mom um stopped working i think when my brother was born before that she did some kind of insurance work um and then she pretty much didn't work while we were growing up um my dad um is an automotive engineer and he's worked in suspension systems. So he worked for a formula one team Lotus when I was a very small child and then, uh, worked at Lotus cars while I was growing up, which was fun and interesting because he'd bring home sports cars and stuff. Yeah. By the time we moved, 
he was working for TRW, which is like a giant corporation that does credit checks, and it's the building that they blow up at the end of Fight Club, and <laughs> they make parts for all of the major cars. So it would be like he designed suspension systems that then get sold to Ford, etc. Gotcha. Um, and they're retired now. But, yeah. um, so was he? Was it like normal hours when you were growing up, or was was he working? Constantly? He worked a ton, and he worked um, in. He was constantly traveling to America and back. Oh wow! So um, he was gone most of the time, and it was basically just my moment. He was a very kind of '80s businessman stereotype, workaholic type yeah. thing. Um, and he was the scary dad, where like when he came home, he'd put the news on, and we had to scatter. Um, and not make any noise because dad's been at work all day and he's grumpy and um, did not have the greatest relationship with him growing up. Now, now as an adult, um, I have a good relationship with both my parents. But back then, he was kind of a scary and person. Well, I could be projecting um, here, but what did that do to your impression of like men growing up, especially like older men? Like, Do you find yourself attached to when you're dating someone? Do you like their father or do you like shy away from their father? <laughs> Do I, I don't, I have never met anyone I've dated's dad. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. <laughs> so I like, I, look forward to um, it. I love it. I'm like, Ooh, someone like a male role model in my life. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it has, um, I think my brother was very much the same, um, kind of man. Yeah. So I've realized that my, my definitions of, of the way that men should be is very much not like sports and I can't think of anything else but like sports, but like <laughs> I find it very emasculating if a guy doesn't know about cars and computers. Like if I know more about computers than a guy, then I'm like, what is that? Cause like that's where the gender roles yeah. broke down in my household. Yeah. Um, but no, I think, I think that, I mean, if we're getting into this, <laughs> I think that my, <laughs> he was the head of household. And my mom was very much subservient to that. And I think that molded me very much that I was like, women are lesser than. Yeah. And and if you want to be taken seriously, you need to reject feminine things. Okay. Um, so I think that that played a, a role in that. But so but, um, your, your childhood is just, I mean, primarily it's you, your brother, and your mom for the most part because your dad's working so much yeah and it was always this looming threat that we were going to move to america which was really cool when i was a kid yeah um and we would come to america on vacations those were always the good vacations like we got to come to america um and i didn't realize that so much of that was on like credit card i mean airline miles at the time yeah, yeah. um and in hindsight, it's funny because we'd go to nice hotels and we'd have these flights and that's not what the other kids back in school in England were doing. And so I think I thought that we had more money than we did. But it was a weird thing because we'd be like, okay, we get free breakfast at the hotel, so eat everything because we're not eating lunch anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And in hindsight, I realize now it's because we were living off points. Yeah, that's <laughs> how I, I do when life. I travel, when I'm on the road. <laughs> I know that life really well now. Like I've been well versed in that now. But um, we just, you know, we'd camp in France 
for summers we weren't doing that and it's funny because now that sounds like an amazing vacation back then that was like the bad holiday we were taking what are the Um, i'm curious this is like nothing to do with you personally but (laughs) what were the like american stereotypes that were that you guys had over there before you came over here that were either that you either found to be true or you moved here and you're like oh that was wrong So I am not going to comment on whether they are true or not, but I can tell you <laughs> that the the books and stuff that when people would fill them out to be like, have a great, like, we'll miss you. Oh, yearbooks, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, they weren't specifically yearbooks because we didn't have them, but you would have like little things where it's like, write on this to say goodbye to me, like yeah, yeah. cards and stuff. They all said, um, it's fat, it's stupid, and it's don't get shot. What? So those are the things they think that Americans are fat, stupid, and get shot. (laughs) And I will tell you, Columbine happened my second day of high school. Do you know that? Yeah, cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's got to put a bad taste in your mouth. Yeah, we moved April 1st, 1999, and Tuesday. So I came during spring break. So it actually might have been the following week. So we were off during spring break, and then... It's the Tuesday of April 20th, 1999 yeah. is when Columbine happened. That's crazy. And I was like, what is happening? Um, so, well, <laughs> you said you, when you were younger, the, the threat of moving to America was exciting. Um, mm-hmm. When it finally happened and you knew it was going to happen, what was, what was that like as a teenager? I mean, like, cause that's already a tumultuous time. Um like mentally and physically, like what's going on with my brain, my body, <laughs> high school is crazy. Um, I think, I think the main thing was that so similarly to how we ended up having a really nice group of friends in high school. Yeah. I had a really solid group of friends um, when I was 15, 16 in England. And at that age, the, you know, you don't hang out with your family. Well, I didn't like you're a teenager. You yeah, spend yeah. all of your time with your friends. And when, I remember the day my mom coming and telling me that, that we were moving. I was like working on technology homework and she came in and she was like, how do you feel about having your own car? And I was like, what have you done? And she was like, and a basement. And I was like, we're moving to America because you don't have basements in England. And then that was probably, it took so long for us to secure a visa that we didn't move until at least a year after we knew oh, we were moving. Wow. So I had this ridiculous amount of leaving parties where other my friends' parents were like, I thought she'd already gone. Like, why do you have to go to another leaving party for this person? <laughs> and What a great excuse for I a party. Ended up, I ended up sitting for exams that were going to mean nothing. Um, and I was still like doing my homework and studying for exams that I wasn't going to take for another year and a half like the moron that I am because I'm a little <laughs> um, because we were never sure it kept getting pushed back whether we were getting the visa or not um, so that's why we moved in such a weird time like by that point I should have been there the beginning of junior year and we didn't move until after spring break the end of June that's crazy that's like and there was no even now it would have been different because skyping texting yeah. emailing back then it was like someone needs to get offline so you can send an email and in england you had to pay for email like you had to pay to get online so it was very cut off from 
from everybody and there was no Facebook. Yeah. It's weird. Cause you know, you hear the, all the horror stories of like, especially people from the middle East trying to get a visa to come to America. Um, but like as an American, I think of like England and I'm like, Oh, those people probably just like shoot a text and like, Hey guys, be there soon. And they just throw them a visa. <laughs> but it's, so it's crazy to think that like, even a country that's like so close to us, uh, not in the 1700s, um, but right. <laughs> would, but now would just, friends, yeah, would friends. just make it a, such a, such a hassle. And, you know, well, and what was crazy was, so that took a long time to get a visa. And then we came under an H1B work visa. So my dad's job has to prove that he's the only person that can do the job. That's why he needs to be in the country to do it. No other Americans can do the job. And then we are allowed to come as dependents on that. Yeah. But we, as dependents, can't work. So my mom couldn't work. I, I couldn't remember work. That. <laughs> um, you re- I remember you being mad that we were all working at Blockbuster because you couldn't work anywhere. <laughs> well, because there's no dependents. And my parents weren't the kind of people that were like, here's a bunch of money. And they were good in that they would give me money, but it always came. By... Now I actually am very thankful about how my parents have always been with money. Yeah. Where from an early age, they were like, we're going to give you allowance, but you need to budget out and show us what this money's going to. And Which every now, child should have to do now. <laughs> yes. Like now I realize that when I see other people and they're like, I have $500 because that's what's left on my credit card. I'm like, that's not your money. <laughs> I realize that that's not the kind of train. My parents did a fantastic job financially training me. But at the time, it was independence that I didn't have. Yeah. Like you guys had. I couldn't drive yet. I didn't have any money because I wasn't working or I had to like be accountable to them for it. Yeah. Um, but what's really crazy is, so I moved 1999. We were supposed to take about 18 months to get a green card. And we didn't get a green card until I was in my second year in law school in 2000. It took seven years or so because September 11th happened in 2001 and everything stopped and slowed down so something yeah. that was supposed to take 18 months took seven years wow so the whole yeah i mean even so, then the immigration process was still completely fucked <laughs> right and you have you don't have there's a lot of freedoms that you don't have without having a green card like we couldn't leave the country for a certain amount of time like you couldn't be gone for more than a certain amount of time yeah um and always worried whether we would get a green card or not um, was it ever severe enough? Anything wrong? Was it ever severe enough to where like you guys had a fear like you would get deported back to England? I remember being very afraid to do anything like protest, yeah, or get in any real trouble. Because if I got like picked up for a minor in possession or something, then that would go on there, and it's like, well, why are we going to give this lawbreaker a uh, a green card? Yeah. And I remember being very afraid when we went green card about whether they were going to drug test us because I smoked pot. <laughs> and I remember calling my brother and being like, if they drug test us, I'm getting deported. And like, what? And I remember my brother being like, I kind of weirdly think this is something you should go to dad about, not mom. <laughs> like we had a discussion of like, which of my parents do I tell? Yeah. And like how, like, this isn't just like, sorry that I got caught smoking pot on the dad. This is like, so I'm getting deported <laughs> um, because of marijuana. Um, but luckily that didn't happen. They don't drug test you. They just 
they be, do God, it. That'd be weird if they did. Like you saying it, I was like, that sounds like pretty invasive. I was sure they would. They do an HIV test. That was the paranoia. <laughs> um, like they blood test you for a bunch of stuff. They take your fingerprints. And then um, like they do a bunch of biometric testing, but for whatever reason, they don't drug test you. Thank goodness. Um, so, and now I have citizenship. So, and I live in a state where I can smoke all the marijuana I want, as long as the federal government doesn't come for me. So, um, and we'll get to that shortly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you come to America, you're finishing out high school. Columbine happens, <laughs> which yes, probably is like, Oh, so Americans are violent and crazy and I'm going to die here. Um, it was just all like, don't get shot. And then I was like, Whoa, this is a real thing. What's the dynamic change in your house with your brother not there anymore and it's just you and your mom because your dad's probably, I imagine, still working a good amount? He's still working a good amount, but he's there because he's not traveling. Like, now he's where he was traveling to. Yeah. Um, but it is rough. We we underestimated how tough it was going to be moving because we'd visited here. It looks you know, similar enough to home and the language is the same that I think we were all like, this is going to be easy peasy, easy peasy. And the culture shock took us all by surprise because it was, and is a foreign country. It is different. People are different. Um, and I think if, if we had, it would have been easier. I think if we'd been like braced for, moving somewhere where the I think the language difference is sneaky because I think when the language is different you're very aware up front that there's a difference and when that's removed it feels insidious and like we should be relating to each other but there seems to be a block here um was there specific stuff when you say culture shock like that like you know people Americans for instance might not take or might not think about that you guys were like what what the fuck (laughs) It's really, I'm sorry, the motorbike's going by the background. Um, <laughs> it's hard to, in some ways it's easier now to look back on the whole thing. And in some ways it's hard because I'm American now. Like yeah. I've lived here more than half my life. Yeah. Um, but I think there's some fundamental stuff. I mean, for one thing, unless you're talking about like UKIP and real conservative racist people, people in England, even the conservative people have a baseline that is more liberal than the Democrat party would be here. Like there's no idea that you wouldn't have universal health care for everybody. <laughs> and that like, you know, education would be free. Like it's a socialist country. Yeah. And, um, I think the idea of a collective, culture that's tied together it's smaller um it had you know similarly but growing up there was like four tv stations but everybody's like watching the same stuff and obviously that was more similar here and changed but i think the culture across the whole country is less diverse than it is in the states and the states is founded on this individualistic like you can be what you make of yourself um which, you know, I, I struggled with whether I wanted to 
be a citizen through a lot of the stuff that happened, like the Bush after I arrived in a way that a lot of people were acting in, in after September 11th and stuff. But it's weird because when I went to law school and really studied the constitution and what this country was founded on, the principles that this country's founded on, I really do support and agree with. Yeah. It's just a struggle that you, when you put that with, it, it is inherently in conflict with the idea of looking after everybody. Like we're saying, everybody staying home for the good of the vulnerable is not something that America was founded on. Yeah. You know? Um, Which is funny because it sounds like, just sounds like humanity. Like being a good human being. (laughs) But that's... (laughs) It does, but it's kind of, it's it's tough because it depends on how you look at it. It's, It's the idea of you can't tell me what to do because in you telling me what to do, you're going to pick something that's oppressive. Like, I can't be gay, for instance. That's you telling me what to do. Like, I have to practice a certain religion. That's you telling me what to do. Yeah. And America was supposed to be the place that everywhere across the world, people could come to you and be whatever it was that they wanted to be and be free. And unfortunately, that's kind of walked into sometimes that's okay. Um, if it fits the mold. Yeah. Yeah, so, but I think even in some other things, there's um, there's a strange directness to English people that I think I've noticed comes across. Like, I think most people would say that I'm very opinionated, and I'm not not opinionated as a human being. Yeah. But I'm probably averagely opinionated as an English person. Because an English person is going to tell you what they think about stuff. Yeah. Um, I can appreciate that. And <laughs> it's funny because my friends, my good friends met um, an English person on, on a trip to Thailand that they went on. And they came back and they'd started calling her New Lindsay. And they came back and they were like, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we thought was you as a person. And it's just English people. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it is a different country. Way like, to play think, into the stereotype. <laughs> but it was it wasn't like I like crumpets. It was like the way that they were as a person. <clears throat> and I think again, because I'm white and I speak English, now I have an American accent. Which is a long <laughs> to, way of it. But to English it's the same language. <laughs> yeah. I think the differences can be easily easily missed. Um because it seems the same, but it is a different country and a different culture. Yeah. Um, so I think there's some things where it's like, we're going to just say what we think about stuff. There you go. Um, and not kind of, I don't know. And at the same time, cause we have a, we have a reputation for being very polite and I think we will be, but in a way that we're like, we're not going to address some personal stuff. But we're going to address some stuff. It's hard. It's really hard to explain. Um, but I see it play out sometimes, and I'm like, "That's somebody." In reality TV with English people, I see it play out. I'm like, "They're just, you know, saying what's on there." They're just being Brits. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they're not being rude. They're just because it's the same way. Like East Coast, even in America, East Coast people will be a lot more direct about what's going on. Yeah. They cut to the chase and say what's going on. Moving to California, it's the antithesis of that. And I get emails where it's like, 
I was wondering if you could think about maybe putting together something that's to do a little bit with this thing. And I'm like, just say that you want me to write Lindsay, this. put it together. <laughs> Is that my really bad East Coast? Possibly. That was a great, um, that was a great uh, East Coast. So was there a lot of pressure because your dad's job and his history to go to college and your brother going to university? I think it was an expectation that was never questioned. Okay. Like I've never even, um, my mom had done a, even kind of an advanced certificate after high school, I think. Okay. Um, I don't know if my dad has his master's, maybe not, but my brother was on a master's degree course. Um, and in England, you do your GCSEs and finish at 16, and then you do your A-level exams that um, qualify you to go to university. So you're kind of on a track from an early age to go to university. Um, and it wasn't ever a – there was nothing ever I wanted to do that would stop me going to university either. So, And I kind of liked school and learning, so that was always kind of a – It's helpful. Yeah. Um, and you went to OU, Oakland University for, did you go for psychology? Is that right? Do I remember yeah, correctly? Yeah, I went to Grand Valley for oh, you one semester and then, yeah, and then uh, ran back. And it's funny because I think that I was like, get me as far away from Clarkston as I could possibly get. <laughs> the um, other side of the state. <laughs> got, because I couldn't go out of state because we didn't have a green uh, card. Yeah. So they counted me as another roadblock. Yeah. Yep, and Michigan, uh, Michigan wouldn't count me as in-state even, even though we owned property and like yeah. paid property taxes and stuff. So, That's um, crazy. and we hadn't saved for college because you don't do that in England. So my parents didn't have any yeah. money to send me to college. I mean, they had enough money, thankfully. Um, and I mean, in hindsight, my parents paying for my college was a huge huge blessing that I'm not blessing. I don't, I'm not religious. Take that out. I'm just <laughs> um, a huge benefit and privilege that I have because, um, while I'm still paying off law school, I don't have the burden of also paying off undergrad loans. Yeah. Yeah. I went to OU and I finished in three years because I'd been going in high school to OU because I got mm-hmm. to high school and was like, get me out of here. Yeah. And, uh, um, Went and was dual enrolled at OU because my English schooling had transferred over. I remember that. Yeah. So that was that was good, too. So when you graduated, is that when you went to Chicago? Yeah. So I took a year off and tried to work out what I wanted to do and whether I wanted to go back to England or not. Um, and decided I wanted to go to law school and then uh, ended up going to DePaul in Chicago. And moved there. What brought you there? Like, what was the appeal? Other than like, ooh, Chicago. Um, Well, so I wanted to do international law because I wanted to work for the UN. And I, they, I applied to schools that had an international law program. Um, I got into American University and I was absolutely over the moon. That's in D.C., I was super excited. I called into Blockbuster Video for the first time in my life. I was like, this is the best thing ever. And DePaul had given me a scholarship to go there. 
and my parents who were not supportive of me going to law school already. <laughs> why, why were they against that? That's like, that is a rare thing. I feel like for parents. to be. Yep. They, I remember like I applying for everything and it costs a lot of money to apply and they weren't part of that process whatsoever. And they, they didn't, because it cost a lot of money and they didn't come from a place where they had paid going into that much debt to go to school was not a good idea as yeah. far as they were concerned. Still not a good and idea. I think they weren't, it's not in hindsight. And I think that they weren't, um, they weren't obstructionist of it, but they weren't like, Oh yay, We're so happy. You're going to law school. We're so proud. This is great. They just kind of like, okay. And because we didn't have a green card, I didn't qualify for student loans. So oh. I had to borrow the money off them. And they said, you can borrow the money off us at the interest that we're losing it on our savings by giving it to you. But it meant that they said, you're going to go to DePaul where you have a scholarship, not American University where you don't have a scholarship because that's a better financial decision. And that was devastating for me. And I was very upset about it because the difference in quality of schools yeah. was huge. And I'd worked really, really hard to get into American University, and I felt like I could have worked half as hard and gone to DePaul, and was just, in hindsight, kind of a brat about it. Um, I feel like you kind of you had like, a right to be, right, though? I mean, that's, I imagine, mm -hmm. especially if you wanted to work in the UN, coming out of American University would have been much better path, at, like, if that, if that was your yes. original plan. Um, that's crazy though. Completely like it's, different. It's nuts to think about all the obstacles. Like any kid in America going to college, unless your family is rich, like you, uh, that financial thing, especially nowadays, like as tuition continues to skyrocket, it's something mm -hmm. that people have to think about. But adding into that, that like you can't even you can't even go into the debt that you want because no. of your immigration <laughs> status. Um, that's it's a crazy thing to think about. That I I mean I've. I've I would have never even put that into the spectrum of like, oh, here's an issue that you might deal with. Uh, but it is. And it's just, it's one of those things where now I say it's inspired because it's like in the grand scheme of life, like, wow, my parents didn't lend me the money to go to the right law school that I wanted to go to. Like, it's well, you but you can use that tone with anything. Like, oh, the grocery store was out of so broccoli. <laughs> like, doesn't mean you have to like invalidate what you want to do with your life. <laughs> no, and I think it was funny for the longest time because I did really like Chicago. My life went in a completely different direction, and that was a very fork in the roads thing where I had no idea where I'd be and what I'd be doing now if I'd gone to American University. Yeah. And my parents are often like, you're doing, but you like Chicago, huh? You like Chicago. See, this is the right thing. Like, I think for a long time, they were kind of like, see, this was fine. This was fine. Yeah, but I'm and, sure they also did that for their own self-assurances. Like, they probably felt oh, that's some underlying guilt. I yeah. Kind of, <laughs> I kind of wanted to be like, I'm not going to ruin the rest of my life and have it be miserable to prove to you guys that this was the wrong <laughs> thing to do. Like, that would yeah. be stupid. If you want to do that, um, just like do cocaine or something. Um, but what's upsetting is that I lost that scholarship in the first semester of DePaul because they set it up that way that you have to maintain like maintaining a, a GPA or whatever it's called I don't even remember yeah GPA. GPA grade point average um, we, we have a word GPL at my work now so I'm getting confused but uh, grade point <laughs> average in 
like to get into law school, you'd obviously be in like a 4.035 and up thing. Yeah. Um, so they said it that you have to maintain a three point, I think it was a 3.8 or something in law school, which is like most people are not going to do that. Like you're graded on a curve with everybody else that was top of their classes in college. Yeah. Um, and I had one class that screwed up my GPA, so I lost the money anyway. You couldn't sleep with the professor like, or anything? No, it was, it was an English <laughs> professor that had really um, screwed that up. So it was kind of like I didn't get the money and the financial benefit from it anyway. Yeah. But would I be in even more debt right now if I'd gone to a American and would I be maybe in a miserable job that I didn't like or would I be at some fabulous position in the UN who the hell even knows yeah so did you finish law school yes yes and I am an attorney in Illinois although I'm not in Illinois and I do not practice law um I am licensed to pass the bar in Illinois I passed the bar (laughs) I got sworn in um um and I went into during, because I'd wanted to do international law and I wanted to do conflict resolution. Um, that's what I had looked into doing and in, in the jobs for the UN that wanted to do that, you needed an international law degree. Um, and the more I researched it, you kind of had to be a politician, really. You had to be like Jimmy Carter to do the kind of conflict resolution that I wanted to do. Yeah. But I got involved in community conflict resolution while I was in law school and started doing mediation. Um, and became a mediator through the whole of law school. And then I graduated law school. That's what I did in Chicago. I was a child protection mediator. So children who had been removed from their families by the state, um, we would do mediations between the caseworker and the family or the family and the foster families to try to set up visitation agreements and stuff. So that was an intense... Yeah, that's got to be hard to go through that. I have someone I interviewed on here who she was like the person, I think she said it was the person that they go to before child protective services. So she has to like work one-on-one with the family and mm-hmm. um, for like a couple of weeks or a couple of months. I don't know what the time period was, but uh, that just sounds like the hardest job to like be the person that is there to help decide whether or not those parents are fucking terrible people or not <laughs> essentially. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, and they, it was very eye-opening. Um, for the most part, we didn't have to work with the children because they weren't there and part of the mediations would hear about them. Yeah. Um, but, and we didn't have to make any decisions, which was very thankful because we're just helping other people make decisions. So in some cases, it's incredibly rewarding because when you have like parents and foster parents crying and hugging and working out ways that they can see the children... Um, and working through their issues, that was, you know, some of the most rewarding work I'm sure I'll ever do. But that system is so intensely broken. And, you know, how eye-opening it is that these children are removed and, like, to think child abuse and neglect, and most people think it's like, oh, you have to work with these parents and they must be terrible. And it's like, the amount of which I was pro-parent in those cases. Yeah. And that the parent, like parents, are not given a shot. Um, foster parents that go into it for the wrong reasons, and they, their couples that want babies, which means they're not working for reunification with the parents. 
like they even subconsciously sometimes putting up roadblocks and being like, well, the child gets upset after they see you. And it's like, well, because that's their parent. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was really, and the systemic racism that goes on, like the, the research shows that no race abuses its children more than any other race. And I think it's like over 80% of the children in the foster care system are African-American in Cook County. It's, uh, it's, you know, if there's a white kid that there's an issue, they're going to, uh, they're going to do everything they can to keep that family together. And unfortunately, uh, families of other races don't get that kind yeah, of uh, it's fucked up. support. Um, it was really, so I did that for about five years and I was like, this is enough. Um, I want to shift the lens and go back a little bit okay. uh, outside of your academic and professional life. Like what's going on throughout your college career <laughs> or your social circles? I mean, are, is anything that kind of started to shape anything that you, you are now? I mean, you've gone through, you were in England, you have this cl- close knit group of friends then you have to leave come to america you get another close-knit group of friends and then you go to college and that group kind of breaks up like what's what's the next uh thing in your social circle and do you find yourself and i i'm projecting here but <laughs> do you find yourself uh becoming more guarded as different groups of friends fade away i don't know depending on like how they worked out but like like i've i've put up a lot of barriers that i've had to like as i grow up knock back down to create like more intimate friendships because in the past it's not like some people have deliberately hurt me, but like some things it's just like, Oh, I became really close and vulnerable with that person. And like, now we're not friends. And it's like, what's, what's the point? (laughs) Uh, I think I am only learning to do that in the last year. (laughs) Um, I have, I made really close friends in with people in Chicago um, and I'm still very close friends with them. So we still visit each other, um, and met a lot of friends through them that are, live all over the country. And, you know, they're the people I'm doing Skype happy hours with during this whole thing. Yeah. Um, and then we travel a lot and, um, even having moved out here, I've stayed in good contact with them. I think when, like, they're the people that we all spend our 30th birthdays together. That's um, fun. and it's, a, yeah. Um, we're not a group of people that, um, I'm just going to close the blinds. We're not, um, a group of people that got married and had kids. So we all spent our 30th birthdays, like had big 30ths for each other instead of traveling to each other's weddings. Yeah. And now we're all doing that with beginning this year would be the first year that we start doing that with each other's 40th birthdays. Um, and I think because I had that uprooting and moving, one of the reasons I felt comfortable and confident enough to move out here to California was because I've done that. Yeah. Like I moved to England, made friends in Michigan, moved from Michigan to Chicago, made friends. Um, but recently I have noticed that it's like, I do the same thing. I get close to people and then I look back and I'm like, I'm not friends with those people anymore. Or those people anymore. And it's because I feel like I got burned. And I think now I'm like, Maybe I should stop making friends with people. <laughs> so I'm kind of doing the opposite to yeah. what you're saying is that um, I'm becoming a little, a little more guarded. Um, I do. I'm a people pleaser, and I think that sometimes I 
become a little one-sided and in i don't know i seem to come across the same issue a lot with friendships where i'm like i've been told before they have too high expectations for people in friendships gotcha so it could be that i've um, I've, I've i can understand that I was, <laughs> I've, I was that person for a long time especially like when we were all hanging out and i was like no i remember the thing i would always say was like oh no any friend you have should be someone you can call at four in the morning with any request at all. And I'm like, all right, first of all, I don't care how close we're, if you're calling me at four in the morning, cause you're just like shit faced at a party. Like that's not cool. I'm 37. Well, and I think, yeah. I think that I now, cause I do have like friends with not really friends with families, but friends, a lot of people have significant others that they, lean on and i think different roles for different friendships and different boundaries with different friendships yeah but i am not the greatest i do not like relying on other people or asking for help from other people um so i will like i will have close friendships with people and i'll be there for them but i'm much much more comfortable when i'm there for them than if people need to be there to me well that means because that means you're being vulnerable right like that's yes. the that's the scary part <laughs> that is the scary part yeah same um, that's like when i started going to therapy uh it's funny saying that because like fuck man my parents divorced when i was four i was in and out of therapy for years when i was younger so but when i started going to therapy this last time um like six years ago uh that was like a huge thing that i needed to like a barrier I needed to break down was creating intimate relationships with people and like trace back why I can't do that. <laughs> and then, yeah. then figure out like, Oh, I need to talk with people about something other than like beer. We have to talk about our lives. Right. We need to share things. Um, uh, and I think that's an English thing too, is that you don't talk about stuff like that. Yeah. Like we're not, a I think that's, that's a, like, I don't think that's English. I think that's, <laughs> like a lot of humans, I mean, um, a lot of civilized yeah, humans. But Americans are much more Americans are much more open with their emotions and will be much more like you made me feel this way about this. I'll give you our generation, I mean, but I don't think Americans in general. Like our parents are not like that at all. That's true. Um, that's true. I hope that's a mold that we break. <laughs> yeah. Because even be, even our generation in England, I feel like like my brother and people will be like, oh. like even my sister in law, um, was like, "How is California?" And I was like, "This is directly related, but an example." And she was like, "How's California?" And I was like, "Oh my god, it's amazing! Like, I love my apartment. There's a pool, and it's just sunny all the time, and it's great." And she was like, oh, that was such an American answer. Like, everything's great. It's and I was like, you're not supposed to be excited or happy about things as an English person. You're supposed to be like, quite Drab, really. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like, any expression of exuberant emotion is like, ew, what are you doing? Oh, that's funny. So, but... It just... When you say things like that, all I can do is like think of British comedies and like immediately pop up in my head and like reaction, absurd reactions to things that I think are absurd, but maybe they're funny because that's why it's like, I don't know, sending me down a hole in my head. Um, so 
aside from friendships uh i mean we, we discussed it a little how long have you been in california now um it would have been i moved here in january of 2013 okay so seven years Jeez. so yeah i know i was like <laughs> time flies um we talked um, about this before we started the podcast but when do when do you start realizing that like hey my normal month is not normal and i need to like your endometriosis like when do you begin because you said you had five surgeries i had my fifth one for that in january yes so uh that started all the way back when i was in england when i was 15 in england i that started real early was yep doubled over in pain um and was like something something's wrong and they took me to the doctors because they immediately think you have appendicitis yeah and i remember being really worried at the time because somebody else in my class a boy had thought he had appendicitis and they rushed him off in an ambulance and it turned out to be gas and everybody was just (laughs) if i get to the hospital and fart i'm gonna be so mad (laughs) and i was like oh no so um and so they took me to hospital and as much as I think that the NHS is a wonderful thing, um, it is very different. And I remember that in order to have an ultrasound, which is what I needed, I had to stay in the hospital. And I was also a 15 year old girl. And I had previously had two operations because I'm a medical disaster, (laughs) which will be part of the theme of this. Um, But they were in children's wards and it was very different to be a 15 year old. Um, because I was on the adult ward, and I remember an old lady having some kind of what I now realize she probably coded in her thing next to me. Um, and it was all just really scary, and I think it set me up for a horrible... Like, my blood pressure is high every time I go to the doctor. My that's, blood yeah, pressure that's increased. got to be traumatic as a 15-year-old. Yeah, and it was it was gynecological stuff. So it was a bunch of men with my legs splayed and people's hands on me as a 15 year old girl, when you're like, that's the most mortifying, embarrassing yeah. thing that ever happened. So they did an ultrasound and they found that there was blood in my fallopian tubes, which at the time they called retrograde bleeding. And they didn't really say too much more about it. Um, they kept doing ultrasounds. Um, they did an outpatient ultrasound after that, like six months later, I think, to make sure it had gone. Yeah. Um, but what was clearly happening was that I was bleeding back into my fallopian tubes. Um, and um, so just to explain what endometriosis is, I guess, yeah. um, it is when the cells that normally grow and the lining that normally grows within the uterus grows outside of the uterine cavity, but then still responds the same. So, you would have it grow every month and then shed every month, which would normally be your period, but instead it grows inside other places in your body and sheds there, which means you're internally bleeding all over your internal organs. Cool. So that causes a great deal of issues and it causes pain, inflammation, scar tissue. It can cause adhesions because everything's supposed to be sort of all nice and healthy and slippery on each other. Yeah. But when it gets the scar tissue, it causes things to bind and attach to one another. Um, but then I just had trouble with my periods. I remember when we were even in, it really only displayed itself in ways that I remember when we lived in the flat, 
pig Jason left for Europe and I, I for like six weeks and I had my period the whole time and we would all joke about it that I was bleeding the whole time pig was gone. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't that serious. Um, by the time I went through law school, my first surgery was at the end of, of law school and I saw a doctor in Chicago there um, and I was, again, just doubled over in pain, bleeding all the time. And she was like, I think you have endometriosis, but we have to do a laparoscopy to be able to diagnose that. Yeah. Um, so she did that and she showed me the pictures and said, her words were, a janitor could diagnose you with endometriosis. <laughs> This is it. It's every, it's all Did over you respond with, do I not have to pay you? <laughs> she was a very strange doctor that I did not like, but I was thankful because she finally, so before that they had been like, we think you probably have endometriosis. We're putting you on birth control pills. So I was put on birth control pills at 15. And the only thing that they really told me was be on birth control pills. And the only thing I really knew was that it was a, a leading cause of infertility so I just knew that things weren't going well and this was a leading cause of infertility, which I think set me up very much to be like, I can't ever have children. Yeah. And I never really talked to anybody about it. Nobody ever really talked to me about it, but I was like, this isn't something that's happening. And I think at that early age, that really shaped my kind of, I'd never grown up playing with dolls or being someone that particularly was motherly. Yeah. Again, I think the I wasn't particularly interested in the role that my mother had in my household. Um, so it wasn't desirous to me. But um, in hindsight, I think that I didn't want to want something I couldn't have. So I was just like, that door is shut. Um, and so I had that surgery... And then after that surgery, they put me on a drug called Megase that is supposed to completely stop you having any growth whatsoever for a short period of time. And I started bleeding and I called the doctor and was like, I'm bleeding. And they were like, well, you can't be. That's just what's called breakthrough bleeding because you have such a thin lining that it's like, seeping a little bit and i was like no no no, i'm bleeding and they're like well you can't be because this drug stops that so i'd call every few days and be like i'm bleeding and finally was like can you just see me like this is i'm in yeah. can somebody please just see me which is why i didn't like that doctor and became a common theme in being trying to be treated for this illness um went into the doctor's office and for whatever reason my body had done the exact opposite to what it's supposed to do on this drug. Oh, thanks, body. And had completely stimulated growth. And I had like a uterine lining that was like completely overgrown. So they had to do another surgery all over again. Jeez. Um, and the amount of endometriosis that they find in the stage that you're at doesn't actually correlate to... So they went in that second time and actually removed everything they can. And then as far as the endometrial implants that they could find, but the amount of them that you have doesn't actually correlate to the amount of pain you have because you can have it everywhere and not even know that you have it until you try to have a baby. Um, 
or you can have the, a tiny little spot that can be causing you agonizing pain based on where it is and, and the nerve damage that it's causing. Yeah. So that was 2007. So, and I'd been hospitalized when I was 15. So that'd be what, 1997. So it was 10 years for me to be diagnosed with it properly. Jeez. Um, by that point, it had, you know, done some damage, I think. So my floating tubes were a bit of a mess. Did you, um, and I don't want to like, if I ask something too personal. <laughs> no, go ahead. I mean, we're talking about Shut computer linings. We're well, there. We're there. I'm just, I'm curious, like that happening when you're 15, that experience in the hospital, if that trauma created like, oh, everything down there is crazy i have these old men looking at me here at a time when like you're super vulnerable in that area like did that shut that whole thing down or no because i think that i think it didn't and i have been very lucky um i think i i compartmentalized it as medical stuff yeah um that, i mean that's good so <laughs> Yeah, it didn't, um, it didn't make me any sort of freer or less self-conscious about stuff and, yeah. and sex, but it didn't, um, it didn't make it any more, it, it didn't give me any sort of, uh, specific trauma related to that. I do remember, um, when I would go, because I lost my virginity late, I mean, I think I was 20, when I would go in and have to have like speculums put in and all of this stuff at ultrasounds done and they would be sort of troubled by how young I was and the issues that I was having because they could tell, I think that I was a virgin. I think, you know, yeah. Tell. Let's hope they <laughs> can tell freaking doctors. <laughs> just, um, so I think that there was just, there's often been kind of a look of, of pity on, on the doctor's face with that. And I think I've been very lucky. Endometriosis does cause a lot of pain for a lot of people with sex. And I've been lucky to not have to deal with that. Yeah. Um, what I will say is that when I've been having bad bouts, so that if you're in a tremendous amount of pain, bloating and bleeding all the time, the last thing you want to do is go out and try to find a boyfriend. <laughs> like, I think that, time to fuck, think, guys. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> yeah, obviously. I think that, uh, <laughs> my, my, and I also find it very hard like i said as far as being vulnerable i think i tend to want to deal with all of that stuff on my own yeah um and it's been hard for me to open up to people and let people help me with any of it um well it's got to feel like i mean a pretty personal thing that like what can they do that you know yeah and i think it's impossible like i think i'm very hard to please because i want you to i want you to care and, and look after me but i don't want you to treat me like an invalid and it's like i think it's it's now navigating in my current relationship and he's a nurse so it's very helpful because he's not squeamish and he doesn't really care yeah um but he has that sort of caring undercurrent that's just there i think is is and i'm learning to allow people to to help me and when i have to have the surgeries so I had those surgeries in Chicago and people helped me. And then what they do, just to go back to the, the journey of it, they put you on um, hormone shots that put you into chemical menopause oh, so nice. that you don't. Um, so at this point, now, even course, in 2007, are kids like off the table for you? 
Medically? I mean, medically in the sense that I'm not talking about it with doctors because I'm young enough. I'm like 24, so people aren't hassling me about it. But you can't get pregnant while you're in chemical menopause. And I don't, I don't see a world in which I can be off hormones and living a regular life in order to get pregnant. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, That's yeah. what I always thought. So I did some rounds of shots and they didn't work because of course my body is stupid. Um, and then I quit that doctor and was like, I'm going to go get a second opinion. And I went to a different doctor and she used a different hormone that did work. Um, and I had some sex, some success with that. And it seemed to hold everything down until I moved to the Bay Area. And then I started having issues again in 2014. And I went to a doctor and they had some experts out here and they tried the shots again and they didn't work. And the doctor was like, well, we could do surgery, but you shouldn't have any endometriosis in there because we've been giving you these shots. And I was like, well, I'm having pain, so I don't know. <laughs> and they were like, and I was like, it's right here. It's on the left side. This is, you know, I don't know. You tell me. And they're like, well, if you want us to, we'll do surgery. And I'm like, well, I can't stand up, so let's do a surgery. <laughs> and... And they want to, like, it's so annoying because it's even female doctors because I only have female doctors. And it's one of those things where this illness is not understood. It affects one in ten women. Yeah. But it only affects women. So there's, like, zero research into it. There's, like, the medications in it. Are, or are women not treated equally in the medical world? I mean, some could say they have done some research I heard about recently, and it was about how endometriosis affects men's mental health from dealing with the women that have it. Oh Is that a real thing? <laughs> yes. Oh my! It God. was a New Zealand study that happened, and I was like, "Well, that's that's great." Wow. So I'm dealing with this doctor, and she's kind of like I can tell she's asking me questions, kind of like, "Were you sexually abused?" Because you can have a lot of pelvic pain if you're abused, and I'm like. I now, I have a diagnosis. They have opened me up and found this. Yeah. And you're still being worried about it. So we had a surgery. And what do you know? They found endometriosis. My ovary was glued to my abdominal wall. Oh, and God. Yeah. And so I was like, well, and it's funny because where she found it, I was like, she's like, well, we did find some endometriosis. And I was like, oh, really? And I was like, was it on the left? And she was like, yep. And I was like, oh, so like right where I thought that maybe this <laughs> And you have to be so careful because I don't want to be, you know, I'm now in my job now, I work with, with dentists rather than doctors, obviously, but it's like no one wants to be, I don't want to be labeled crazy for one. Yeah. I see how difficult patients get labeled. So you have to really like carefully tread but also advocate for your own health yeah well, that's what i was gonna say too you really i mean i'm sure you've learned this even more than me but you really have to like be your own advocate in a way that's like unfair <laughs> yes because <laughs> like mean, no and, no and, no i don't think you understand this is my body this is how i feel please like you're the person that's supposed to know this shit so can you look at this and yes. figure it out and to go in so now I've worked out that I have to go in with my history written out and explain and know the names of all the drugs that they've tried before and what happened. And that experience with the Megase was very much like, look, you can tell me 
that this is how something is supposed to react. Yeah. But for whatever reason, and this happens to me with a bunch of stuff, if there's a 1% chance that something's going to go, like, I'm the 1% that gets that <laughs> reaction to whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and it's, that's very annoying, but, um, I now here in California found some good doctors and they did that surgery. And, but honestly, with this new round that I went, so it got bad again, I had a emergency laparoscopy in 2016, uh, for ovarian torsion. Cause I had a huge cyst that was caused by the IUD that they've put in to control the endometriosis. Um, because it had been so bad for so long, it's caused pelvic floor dysfunction. So a lot of the pain that I have actually isn't anything to do with any of that. It's the muscles are all messed up. Um, so I have a lot of pain that feels like I have appendicitis, but it's actually just the muscles. So now I'm in physical therapy and that has been a godsend for, you know, finding a good doctor that can send me in and set me up with that. But then I started having more, you know, pain and issues again. And I was like, this doesn't feel like the muscle pain. This feels like when I have endometriosis about November of last year and went back and it took me, you know, telling them over and over again. And they're like, well, we can look and see, but you shouldn't have any in there. And I was like, well, to be honest, that's what they said in 2014. This conversation sounds awfully familiar. And I was like, how many... (laughs) Yeah. How many times do we have to have the same conversation? So it's it's extremely frustrating um, to not, like, I just wish that, I mean, like you said, you have to, to advocate for yourself, too. So I think that I'm wrong when I think that it'd be different if I had a different illness. But I do wish it was something that was better understood. Well, I think um, that, yeah, I think that's probably a huge thing and i'm not i don't want to come off as comparing anything um because i'm not <laughs> but oh no no but, i just mean it's useful because i never talk about it either yeah, yeah. like it's not something i get into and i think that i sort of it is a chronic thing um and i think realizing and coming to terms with the fact that it's like i have a chronic illness and i don't think of myself as some that either has a chronic illness. Yeah. But it's like, you've got a freaking disease. You've got a disease. It's not your, like I email my boss and I'm like, I'm really embarrassed, but I'm not just like, why are you embarrassed? I'm like, I don't know. Like I have a lot of guilt and shame surrounding being ill. Yeah, I get that. Um, And I think it's people pleasing again. Like I want to be on that work call and like able to go to that function. Yeah. Um, And it's weird because everybody's in lockdown right now and I'm like, I'm not missing any of the things that I normally would. <laughs> like I'm not I'm not disappointing people because I can still interact with them um while still dealing with it. So Yeah. Jumping jumping a little off from where we're at. Yes. Cause I, I'm, I'm just this, curious about the timeline though. What takes you out to California? General curiosity, <laughs> what the sun's like. <laughs> like yes. So um I had been working that child protection job and it had been about five years and I'd been in uh, Chicago for about eight years and I was thinking that I wanted to get a new job. Um, and in, I was talking to a guy and he worked at Facebook 
And I was like, I want to work at Facebook. And oh, he was like, yeah. well, Facebook leak. Yeah, <laughs> not now. <laughs> now I'm like, <laughs> now I do data privacy. And I'm like, I don't want to work at Facebook. They, uh, he said, well, the offices are in California. And I was like, well, I don't want to live in California. And I was leaving the end of that week to visit my friend Rihanna who lived in California. Rihanna. And so on that plane ride, I was like, what if I lived in California? What if I did move <laughs> to California? And so I spent the whole of that trip, like, what if I lived here? And it was only a long weekend, but I was like, what if I moved here? And I like took some time and walked around by myself. And I was like, could I live here? And I knew that by the time I was like, when I get home, I'll know whether this is a real thing or not. Yeah. Like, I'll either be like, never mind that. Or I'll be like, oh, I think I'm moving to California. <laughs> and I came home and was like, oh, I think I'm moving to California. Like, if I'm looking for a new job anyway, why don't I go and do something new? Yeah. And it just felt like the right time. And I looked for a job, found one, and then packed stuff, including that lamp, into my car, put <laughs> Hamish in the car, and then drove my car by myself across the country from Chicago to San Francisco and did and it. There you are. Yeah. And now then when I moved, I moved three years ago from San Francisco to Oakland and it, it's across the bridge and it's like three miles away. And it was so stressful that I was like, how on earth did I move? And I was in the same job. Everything was the same, but I was like, oh. like how on earth did I move? ever move from Chicago to San Francisco. That's funny. This is how stressed I am about moving to. I, I can't believe it in hindsight now that I did it. But, and I was a little worried because at that time, eight years was the longest I'd lived anywhere. Yeah. That I was like, am I just going to want to move every eight years or so? And I haven't been here eight years yet, but <laughs> I'm hopeful that so you never know. I don't, you never know. I mean, and who's to say, um, it might happen. I wouldn't be completely surprised. Um, but I'm pretty settled in a relationship now. But I think, you know, you never know if that goes tits up. Maybe I'll <laughs> pack up the car again. Because <laughs> um, I do, I just, I think leaving England's given me kind of a nomadic yeah. existence. I don't, I don't feel like I have particularly roots. If you can make it here, anywhere. you can make it anywhere. Yeah, or you can just keep packing up the car and moving on when things get weird. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, hopefully things don't get too weird. Um, so things are good, though. But I mean. They're good. It's a good place to be. And I, I had always joked when I was in Chicago and Michigan and England, like, I don't care about weather. And then you move to California and you're like, oh. I can hear you making fun of California in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Once you live in nice weather, it's really hard to talk about living somewhere where the weather is yeah. not nice. Yeah, my like, uh, sunny days is it's great, right? I I do miss that. Um, I know I was, I was only out there for two years, but I I miss that um, a lot. <laughs> and like the yeah. older I get, the more I'm like, I don't need this winter. I used to be like, but it's so magical sometimes. <laughs> no, just like well, it is magical. It's you magical to, to visit on Christmas, it, but. <laughs> If I can just go back somewhere else after that, that'd be great. Um, so no, I think it's just like oh, it's taken. It's just 
And I used to be really like, I can't live without seasons. I'll go crazy without seasons. Yeah. And now I'm like, the length of the days changes. Yeah. And that's enough season change for me. Like it does, it gets a little bit colder and it rains and the length, like it's sunny in the morning or it's completely dark in the morning. Like that's a season change and that is more <laughs> than enough for me now. But what is weird is that time speeds up the older you get anyway. Yeah. It's all but relevant. when there's no real season distinction here, it all blurs together really easily because there's no recall of memory to be like, oh, remember when, like when you came to visit, for instance. Yeah. I don't know what time of year that was. Don't tell me what time of year that was. <laughs> but it was sunny and nice outside. So yeah. it could have been February or December. Yeah, we or met each other at a little cafe, August. walking around the We could downtown. have been wearing shorts. Like you have the same wardrobe <laughs> year round. Yeah, and I was so visiting no Chad. We drank beer out on yeah. a patio and in, in, in the sunshine. There's no like. It was well, November. We were, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no like we were wearing snow boots and it was freezing and it was dark, so that was obviously. Yeah. I remember like, being I super memory... depressed and it was cold outside, so it must yeah. have been uh, I don't know January. <laughs> the memory gets logged differently, I think, if you're in like shorts and a t-shirt versus tons of layers yeah and here it's just all one big groundhog day blur <laughs> whether that's good or bad remains to be seen yeah it's uh i mean it's the good and the bad i i would trade uh i'll trade not having any idea what is going on time-wise <laughs> with it being sunny every day i guess but <laughs> so i guess finally uh things are going well in this quarantine are you dealing with it well or is it just uh is it the weirdest time? Is it the best time? Well, so like I said, so I had been not feeling the greatest about standing up and moving around from about November of last year. So I had transitioned to working from home, but no one else was working from home um, and sort of feeling guilty about working from home. Um, and I had the surgery in January and I had just gone back to work um, and came back and it, the surgery was like 50% successful and still having some issues. And I just started to have issues again and had just asked my boss if I could work from home again when all this happened. So for me, it was like kind of business as usual because I was yeah. working from home anyway. And now it was kind of nice because everyone else was working from home. And like I said, I'm not, I'm not missing out on activities everyone else was doing. Yeah. So in a, in a terrible way, in some ways, you know, my mom says it's an ill wind that blows no one, no fortune. In some ways for me, it's been kind of nice because, um, now everyone's a shut in. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but I mean, it's, it's been a bit scary wondering what is going to happen and seeing kind of the razor's edge that society lives on. <laughs> um, my boyfriend has his own apartment, but he's been mainly quarantining, yeah, because you said he's a nurse, right? There. Yeah, so he, um, when he's not working, he's really been here um, between shifts. So, and I have a pretty small place with it being the Bay Area, and we have not killed each other. We've been having quite a nice time. So, so that's a, a good part of it. But, um, yeah. and I feel really, really lucky that he's still working. I've been still able to work. Because um, obviously, a lot of people just seeing all of the all of the people that like tons and tons of friends and stuff that immediately got furloughed when, when yeah. we closed down. It's crazy. Um, 
crazy. And now just started getting out a little bit more. Um, I live right by a lake in Oakland, so I've had a friend come and we laid socially distant uh, at the lake so we could see each other and and visiting friends and talking to them from their porch um, and the road and stuff, so still seeing people. But um, I'm a little bit kind of like, I don't want to go back to work (laughs) going into the office every day, but... Well, yeah, I talked to was... my boss today, and he's like, you can stay home if you want. I'm like, okay. <laughs> well, that's good. Is there anything I didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about? I don't think so. I think my poor abandoned brother. <laughs> I, that com- I completely forgot you had a brother. That's so funny. And I don't know if I've I ever, I don't think I've ever met him. No, he hasn't met a lot of my friends. I've met um, Roshi and I've met Rihanna. Those are the only two people I've met through you. <laughs> <laughs> and that, yeah, I mean, it really, it came, for a family that doesn't talk about emotions, we had to have some toughness. And, because once grandkids come into the mix, <laughs> grandparent crack is a hell of a drug, and my parents became ravenously, like, hang out with us. My brother was like, who are you people? I haven't seen you in 20 years. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> But, um, all right, well, go get some rest. Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. Good luck with that lamp. I hope you hold on to it forever. Look, you want to see this? Ready? Alexa, 10 on room lights. You're going to be a little bitch. That didn't pay off at all. (laughs) Alexa, 10 on room lights. I mean, she's shy, apparently. All right. Well, have a good night. Bye. It's good seeing you. All right. I know. I'll talk to you again at some point. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye. All right, you just listened to episode 37 with my friend Lindsay. Uh <laughs> Uh, you guys couldn't uh, we talked for like a half hour before we even started the podcast really, but uh there's a lamp that she has that her and my friend Michelle had when they were in an apartment together back in like 2001. And when I saw that lamp in the background, um, <laughs> I was like, yes, I'm so glad that lamp still exists. And I think I mentioned that at the end of the podcast there. So I wanted to <laughs> clarify what I was talking about. Um, but yeah, it was great catching up with her and hopefully anybody struggling with something like endometriosis, or even if you're a stranger in a strange land. Um, you know, there's a number of topics that I think are discussed that you might be able to relate to. And hopefully you guys are finding some time to stay sane during all of this. And if you want to reach out and have a talk, I am here all the time. So don't hesitate to do that. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at friend request pod on Twitter at friend request JL, or you can email me directly at Justin's friend request at gmail.com. Thank you guys for listening as we get through all of this together. I will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. I love you. I, it sounded, that, that one sounded weird. I love you. <laughs> okay. Uh, bye-bye. <laughs>